Well, hey there, everybody. Joe Scavato here. So excited to spend some time in God's Word together. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I find myself feeling a little bit nostalgic, wanting to, to look back towards a certain time in my life. Do you ever get this way where, where you find yourself looking through maybe old pictures or old yearbooks or, or certain things that you've kept to remember a specific point in your past? A while back, my wife Judy and I were looking through some of our old stuff and we came upon some of the things that we have given to each other, you know, letters and gifts and, and things like that. And to give you an idea of who's the better gift giver in our relationship, for my 24th birthday, my wife got me 24 gifts that she gave to me every hour on the hour. For our most recent anniversary, I think I gave her cash. I was like, I don't know, just find something that you like. It was so fun, though, to, to go back and to read these old letters that we had written to each other, to remember the time in which we were dating and living in different states and where we had everything ahead of us. I wonder if you're like me in this way, where, where a letter or a gift given to you by a loved one, whether it's a spouse or a, a friend or a family member, is one of the most treasured possessions that you have. See, not only does it remind me of that time in my life and the person that I care about, but if that person thought about me, if they took the time to write out these words, then they must be significant. Today we are back in the book of Revelation looking at these seven letters written from Jesus to the seven churches in the first century. We've been looking at these for the past several weeks, how Jesus has these specific words of encouragement and correction to each of the churches. We looked at how the church in Ephesus had lost their first love, how the church in Smyrna was enduring through persecution, and how the church in Pergamum had allowed these earthly teachings into their ranks. But we've also been reminded that these seven letters are not just written to the first century church, but also to the 21st century church. That in his perfect knowledge and in his wisdom, Jesus had you and me in mind when he gave these words to John. And just like it is for me, and maybe for you as well, if Jesus was thinking about us, if he thought it was important enough to give us this gift, to give us these words, then they must be significant. They must matter. Now, I think it's important for us to remember that today as we read this fourth letter written to the church in Thyatira, a letter that might challenge us and stretch us. The city of Thyatira was the smallest of the seven that we see in the book of Revelation, considered the least important and the least powerful. It was a trade city famous for what were called trade guilds, which we might compare to a union today. It's going to matter later on, so remember that for just a moment. But they were famous for their, their trade of copper and other metals, as well as producing this purple dye, this color of royalty. And so Jesus' words to the church in this city we find in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, again, we see this letter contain the same basic structure that we see from most of the previous ones. A commendation, a correction, and a charge. So let's start with the commendation. Over the past few days, Judy and I have really enjoyed watching the Summer Olympics and watching these athletes just show off their incredible skills and abilities on what a, a moment that they've been preparing for for most of their lives. But I also really like giving my commentary on sports that I really have no knowledge or expertise in. We were watching the, the men's volleyball team the other day, and in a matter of minutes, I had gone from watching zero minutes of volleyball since the last Olympics to critiquing their blocking techniques and wondering why they weren't hitting on two more often, like I was some sort of expert. Meanwhile, I've been sitting on my couch for the last three hours just crushing potato chips. It was great. But what I love most about the Olympics is seeing the reaction of these athletes and, and their families and their friends as well. At the end of this event, especially for the ones that end up winning a medal. You see, you see the emotion in those moments, the, all of the hard work, all of the, the sacrifice and the pain and the struggle that they put in paying off, receiving this ultimate prize, this ultimate commendation, something that they can take home and, and hold on to forever, proof of their efforts. See, I think this is what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira. I think he knew that they needed this reward and this reminder and this encouragement that what they were doing was worth it. And it was going to pay off. Look with me again to the first two verses of this letter. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So just like the previous three letters, this one starts with a description of Jesus as this son of God with eyes like fire and feet like bronze. And when you put all that together, it's this idea of moral authority. We're going to talk about why that matters in just a minute, so hold on to that. But look with me now to this commendation in verse 19. He applauds and commends four things of this church, their love, faith, service, and their patient endurance, their perseverance. He's saying these spiritual disciplines, your faithfulness in these everyday things is building to something. It's building to something in the same way that an Olympic athlete's achievement is the result of thousands of hours and even days of practice and endurance. It's a reminder for us that we may never know the eternal impact that everyday faithfulness could have. 
Just like the church here would have had no idea that their good works would be talked about and celebrated almost 2,000 years later. Now, remember what we talked about earlier that this was the least influential of the seven cities. One scholar wrote that the Roman Empire decided that this church was too small, too insignificant to persecute. That the Roman Empire looked at this church and said, it's not worth the effort that it would take to try to stop them. Now, contrast that with what Jesus says. He says, I see your works with eyes that are like fire. What the world may see as small or unimportant, I see as valuable, as something that is worth celebrating. I think one of the things that the enemy loves to do is make us feel the same way. Like I'm too small, like I'm too insignificant, like I can't make a difference. Do you ever feel that way where, where it seems like you just don't measure up, like you don't have what it takes, you're, you're not as gifted or as talented as others? I know I have, and yet I love what this letter teaches us that the piercing eyes of our Savior do not look at the same things that the world does. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that while the world looks at outward appearance, God looks at our heart. And in this way, the church in Thyatira shows us the same thing, that God does not look for greatness as much as he does goodness. He's not looking for flash, but faithfulness, not success, surrender and trust that he has called us to where we are and created us the way that we are and we need only to obey and we see the second part of this commendation look back with me to verse 19 it says this that your latter works exceed the first in other words this church was growing in their love in their faith in their service and in their their endurance they recognize something that we must as well that faith is not a one-time salvation event, but it is a never-ending journey. As part of my role here at Chapel Street, one of the things that I get to do is lead the Rooted program, which is a 10-week uh, small group experience that goes through the rhythms of the Christian life. And one of the ways that we start Rooted is by asking people to identify or chart out their spiritual growth in the past season of their life. And we get all sorts of answers. For, for some, they describe it almost as kind of like a, a roller coaster uh, of this, this time of maybe ups and downs without much consistency and, and trying to figure out how to make it more so. Now, fun fact, this picture is actually the probability chart of the Cubs uh, winning Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. And you can probably see the times where I almost had a heart attack. For others, though, we see a description more like a heartbeat of these times of maybe uh, moments of life, maybe a, a worship service that connects with you or, or a time of serving others or a conversation with a friend or with God, but in between those things, there's not much going on. For others still, we see almost a spiritual plateau where they can remember a time of growth or remember a time where God has been doing something, but recently, it just seems like you're feeling a little bit stuck. What about you? How would you answer that question? How would you describe your spiritual growth in this season of life? In the ways that you've learned more about Jesus, in the ways that you've lived more like Jesus, what would that look like for you? I think for many of us, it's maybe been a little while since we've grown in our everyday spiritual disciplines. 
And of course, things aren't always going to be up and to the right. We'll, we'll never be perfect at this. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we feel stuck spiritually or even in decline. But instead, let us remember this truth. Let us feel hope and know that it is never too late for God to do something new in our lives. It's never too late to start a new path. It's never too late to take another step in your journey with Him. And we know this to be true, that God celebrates with us every time we do. This is the commendation that Jesus gives to the church. He, he moves on, and we see the second part of this letter, the correction. Um, when I was in high school, I worked at an ice cream store. And, and when I started working, one of the things that they trained me in was called decontaminating the ice cream. Now, that probably sounds a little bit scarier than it actually was. All it meant was sometimes when you're scooping ice cream, a little bit of what you have uh, falls out of one container and into the container of another flavor. And so to decontaminate it, all you have to do is scoop that out and throw it away. But I also learned that there was one exception to this practice or, or to this rule. When someone had an allergy to one of the ingredients that we used. Now, when that happened, we had a whole new set of rules we had to follow. We had to get an entirely new container. We had to rewash our hands and wash any utensils that we used because we knew we had to take that seriously. Because even a little bit of contamination could be a life or death issue. This is what Jesus is saying to the church. He's saying this is what is happening, that the church and the gospel is being contaminated, and you need to take this seriously. Read with me, starting in, in verse 20. Jesus says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Now, this can be difficult for us to, to read and to consider and to know what to do with. This is a side of Jesus that we don't often see and don't often talk about. And I know for some of you, you heard that or you read that and it made you a little bit uncomfortable. Now, we like gentle Jesus. We don't often like talking about Jesus that causes tribulation, that throws people into sickbeds, that strikes children down, which to be clear is not a reference to actual children, but rather the followers of this false teacher who claim to have these deep things of God. But still, we struggle with this sometimes. We struggle with the justice of God. And yet we have to remember that the alternative is following a God that permits and condones sin and evil. See, this is not a response of an angry and hateful God. This is the response of a God who has waited for his people to repent who is saying that there is a life or death issue that is going on, that, that this correction that I'm giving you is because of the contamination of the gospel. This is so that you may live. But look with me for just a moment to, to verse 20, because I think this is the key to this correction of Jesus. Look at this, that, that you tolerate 
that woman, that you tolerate this false teacher. Now, notice something. Notice who this correction is addressed to. It's not addressed to the city. It's not addressed to the Roman Empire. It's not even addressed to this false teacher. It's addressed to the church. He's saying that you are tolerating what is intolerable. Now, we see that word tolerate, and, and some of us might apply our modern definitions and context to it. We might say, isn't tolerance a good thing? Isn't it even necessary and important to be tolerant of others? But it's important that we correctly understand what Jesus is trying to say. See, the Greek word that he uses here for tolerate simply means to let go of, to release, or to leave something alone. It's the opposite of the phrase that we see later in verse 25. We see that he says, hold fast what you have. That phrase, hold fast, meaning to, to grab onto, to grasp tightly, and to not let go. To use the metaphor of my ice cream store, to tolerate in this context is to leave something there that shouldn't be. And Jesus is saying, that is exactly what is going on in my church. I mentioned earlier these trade guilds that Thyatira was famous for, these kind of union-like organizations that were hugely influential in the city. In order to be successful in this town, you had to join one of these guilds, and to be a part of them, you had to attend what was called a guild feast, which was kind of like half networking event and half pagan ceremony, where this sexual immorality and idolatry that Jesus mentioned was not just tolerated, but expected and even required. And so the church was facing this tension, this, this dilemma of being caught of, are you going to participate in the world? Are you going to worship these false gods and pursue this immoral behavior? Or will you follow the gospel? And will you risk losing everything, your job, your income, and your reputation? And so into this dilemma comes this false teacher, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel probably wasn't this person's real name. It might have even been more than one person. But it goes back to the story we see in 1 Kings chapter 16 of this woman named Jezebel who marries the king of Israel and influences him and convinces him and many others to not just worship the God of Israel, but to worship a false god as well, having two gods, two masters. And Jesus is saying that, that this person or these people are doing the same thing. They are being a... Jezebel, kind of like if someone called you a Benedict Ar Arnold, you would know that you were being called a traitor. He's saying that they are teaching this false gospel, this contaminated Christianity that does not belong. This idea that you can serve two masters, except in this case, the second master is yourself. That it is tolerable and even expected to live a life of immorality and idolatry at the expense of your integrity. He's saying this kind of teaching only leads one way, towards tribulation, sickness, and eventually spiritual death. So instead, remember me. Remember who I am as I've revealed myself to you. Remember that I am the Son of God, the one with eyes like fire and feet like bronze. Remember that I have both power and purity. And these teachers are taking the purity of my word, and they are corrupting it. And that is intolerable to me. This is why we see this anger from Jesus. In, in fact, in the same way that he had his anger towards uh, those who were selling in the temple and he turned the tables, in, in the same way that he saved his harshest language for the legalistic Pharisees, one thing becomes clear when you study Scripture, that few things anger God more 
than people who are supposed to lead others to him and instead lead them away from the truth that we see in Matthew chapter 6, that you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. You will always choose one over the other. I wonder if there could be a more timely message for us and for the world that we live in today. In a world that idolizes worship of self, that idolizes desire to the point of immorality, that idolizes career and success and, and finances, that says the most important thing for you is your happiness and your comfort. But this is where we have to be careful because I think for some of us, it's easy to see this as a problem out there. It's a problem for the world. It's a problem for other people. But remember who Jesus directs this to. Not to the world, to us, to you, to me. See, he's saying that, that before you worry about the, the world, know that I will take care of them. I'll take care of this teacher. I'll take care of the empire. What you need to do is hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast to my love and the commands that I have given you, to be honest and ask yourself, not if this is true for people out there, if this is true for me. If I have created an idol, even one that I may not be aware of. If my faith is dependent on my finances, my comfort, the things that I have. If my political ideology is more important than my kingdom theology. If my identity is rooted in anything other than who God says I am. This is what idolatry looks like. And Jesus is saying, this is what you have to correct. Before you worry about the world, before you worry about what's going on out there, hold fast to me. Why? Because he wants us to have life. Because he loves us. Because he offers grace and hope in a future for us that is so much better than anything we can find in the world. Do not let this hope that you have become contaminated, even by yourself. So we see this this commendation, this correction, and then finally we see this charge. Um, I remember as a kid playing this game with my friends that only had two rules. Rule number one, uh, one person would have a football and their job was to hold on to that ball no matter what. Rule number two, everyone else's job was to try to get that ball out of their hands no matter what. And there were no other rules. Now, I don't think our parents knew that this game existed, and I'm not really sure why we loved it so much, but we did. We thought it was so much fun, and, and we're, you know, tackling each other and punching and kicking and scratching and clawing, and, and for some reason, we all wanted to be the person with the ball, even though that pretty much guaranteed you a mild concussion. And so it was funny, because after a while, you'd be running around, and there's just this mob of 12-year-olds just chasing after you, and, and at some point, you just get so tired that you would just kind of fall down and just hold on to that ball and just try to hold tight as long as you could. I think in a, in a little different way, this is what Jesus is saying that we should do as well. Look at the last few verses of this letter, starting in verse 25. He says, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, here we see this letter end in the same way, with the same structure as the three that came before it with instructions from Jesus, followed by a promise to the one who conquers. 
We see first this instruction to hold fast what you have, and we mentioned how this was basically saying to, to grasp tightly, to hold on with strength, with everything that you have. It's, that, it's this idea that we should take what we have been given, to take the gospel, to take the love of Christ dying for us to bring us back to the Father, and to hold on to that hope as tightly as we can, to not let it become corrupted, to not let it become twisted, to not let it be taken away by the things of this world. Hold on to the hope of the cross. And then we see this promise to the one who conquers, that God offers both his power and his presence. First, in talking about this rod of iron and pots being broken, Jesus actually is quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, again, remember who he's writing to. Remember that this is this really small, insignificant group of Christians with no influence in a city that didn't even consider them a threat. And Jesus is saying that this is the group. These are the people that will rule with me, that I will give them the authority that the Father has given me. You will rule over nations. But what does this authority, this rule, look like? Well, it looks like being a shepherd. In fact, this word rule is the same word used to tend to a flock, to shepherd others. This rod of iron being a tool that a shepherd would use for two purposes. Number one, to guide and lead and correct the sheep in their care. And number two, to defend against predators and those who looked to attack. See, this is the picture of God that we have been given, as one who is patient and, and guiding and, and wise to those who follow him and yet someone who is just and strong towards those looking for prey. And then we see the second promise, the, the promise of his presence. We see in verse 28 this morning star, which we see again in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is the same promise that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 28, that surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. See, this is why we are able to hold fast to Christ. Jesus is saying that, that this is why you don't need the, the Jezebels, the false teachers, the, the lifestyle of the world, because I have given you something so much better. I have promised you not only my power, not only this authority, but I have also given you my presence, this spirit of God that rests on you, that guides and leads and encourages you every day of your life. Church, this is our hope today as well, because we know this to be true, that this was not just written to the first century church, but to us, that in his perfect knowledge and his perfect power, that he had you and me in mind when he said these things, that even now the spirit of God is with you if you love and follow him, that even if you feel small or insignificant, that you will one day rule as part of an eternal kingdom, that you will have victory. So hold fast to him today. Hold fast to the commands that he has given. Hold fast to the love and the faith and the service and the endurance that you have been called to. Hold on to the truth, the, the knowledge of the gospel that you have been given that can change your life. Hold fast to the power and the presence of God 
that has been promised to you. Today, as we continue our service, we're going to remember that promise, remember the presence of God in a special way as we partake in communion together. If you haven't already, make sure you grab those elements as we share that and celebrate that now. See, Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And while he was with them, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, we see that Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink from it, remember me. Let's drink together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, the encouragement and the truth that we see in your word. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us, the promises that we have. Lord, for the gospel that has changed our lives forever. Lord, I pray now that you would continue to guide us as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our love, as we grow in our service and our endurance. God, would you allow us to hold on tight to the truth that we have, to not let it become twisted or corrupted or contaminated. God, allow us to hold on to the presence that you have, the spirit that moves in us, that guides us every single day. We love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. So glad that we could spend some time in worship together. And I receive today's benediction. May you go now in the name of the Son of God, your Savior, Jesus Christ. Go in the promise of his presence, in the promise of his power, and hold fast to the gospel, growing in the works that you have been called to. Amen. <laughs>